a joy again to open the Word of God. I hope you greet it with a sense of anticipation and eagerness. I know you do. If you're in Christ, you've been given a love of the truth so as to be saved. And every time we open this book, we seek to proclaim what is there, the inerrant and perfect Word of God. It is His revelation to us for our good and for His glory. As we come to the table this morning, we want to do so right in the flow of the text that we have been in, in Philippians chapter 3, so you can turn there. You know, every Christian testimony uh, seems to sort of play out the same way. Most people look, and they, as they consider talking about what Jesus has done for them, they begin with some kind of look backwards, and they consider what their life was prior to knowing Christ, and, and then they progress in the ways that the Lord providentially brought them to an understanding of the truth, an understanding of their sin, an understanding of their need, and open their eyes to the glories of the cross and the sufficiency of Christ, and there is this progression in the way that the Lord saved us from sin and judgment and brought us to repentance and faith and the forgiveness of sins. Some testimonies begin in the gutter, a life that is spent in immorality and overt rebellion against the Lord, and there are other testimonies that begin in the church, like my own, surrounded with the trappings of religion and self-righteous pride, and there are certainly all kinds of testimonies in between that. But the Apostle Paul is one who has a church testimony. He grew up religious. He grew up good. He was an all-Israeli kid. If you had lived in the first century and had known Saul of Tarsus, you would have been certain that he is God's man and that he was holy and that he was destined for eternal life. You never would have thought him to be the chief of sinners. And yet Paul says it is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Sinners. There are no other kinds of people that Jesus saves. And yet if you listen to the gospel that most people seem to have rattling about in their brains, if you listen to the, the gospel of American evangelicalism, you'll still be convinced that what the gospel really is is a, is a, is a trumped-up attempt by men to be good so that God will like them and then let them into the kingdom of heaven. Friends, that is a false gospel. That is a gospel that will land you in hell. If you are to be saved, you must be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. And this passage reminds us that no matter how it is that you came to Christ, whether you were the worldly wicked or you were smugly self-righteous, you needed saving as much as anyone else on this planet. The Bible is crystal clear that there is none righteous, not even one. There, there is no one who seeks for God. I read 
the other day that Oprah considers herself a seeker. I don't know Oprah, but I know she's not a seeker. There is no one who seeks for God. There is no one who is good. No, not one. Nobody lives up to the righteous demands of a holy God. All of us, without exception, fall short of his glory. There is but one path to righteousness. Jesus said, I am the way. There is one path to right standing with God, and that is through faith in our one and only advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, righteous. That is Christ's title. And as we read today, I want you to keep these things in mind and consider with me really what amounts to one of the testimonies that the Apostle Paul gave throughout Scripture. There are many of them. You can find them at the end of the book of Acts. You can find them in the book of Galatians. You can find little bits and pieces throughout. Paul spoke often about who he was before Christ and what Christ accomplished in him in saving him. This is perhaps one of his most detailed testimonies. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Lord, as we come to this text, we ask again that you would open our eyes and by your spirit illumine it, that we might understand and grow with respect to salvation. We pray that, Lord, you would cause us, as we just sang, to, to look at all those vain things about ourselves that charm us most, we ask, Lord, that we too would pour contempt on all of our pride, that in light of the cross we would be reminded again that before you we have empty pockets. We have no righteousness. We are spiritually poor and impoverished, a beggar and nothing more. Lord, remind us through this text who we are. Help us again to cling to the cross, to come humble, broken, in need, reminded again of your grace and the wonder of it, that we might worship you aright and magnify your great name. We give you praise. Help us, we ask. Amen. Paul here takes a look at himself, and he does so for argument's sake. What he's really doing is he's putting up his resume against anyone else's. He's putting up his resume 
as far as what it would take to get to heaven on account of human merit. The Apostle Paul has the right stuff. And he looks these Judaizers in the eye, those who wanted to combine Moses and Jesus, those who wanted to bring law and attach it to grace, those who wanted to say that the way is through faith and it is also by works. You must have them both. He looks these Judaizers in the eye and he says, you who consider the Jewish ritual and obedience to law is necessary for salvation, I call you to account. If you want to talk about law-keeping as a means to the righteousness that God demands, well, let's go toe-to-toe. It's as if he's running a race for righteousness, and he says, oh, you want to talk about foot speed? I can run. Who wants to step up and race? If religious pedigree and tireless exertion could gain anyone acceptance with God, I want you to understand that I was at the head of that list. You want to talk about true excellence in Judaism? I was the valedictorian of the class. You want to compare hardware in the trophy case? Let me show you mine. Let's talk about attainment of righteousness as it is by the way of human merit. And we we hear this in our context, and if Paul were in fact coming from this vantage point, truly hoping of those things, he would in fact be boasting, wouldn't he? We come from our vantage point, we're boasting in everything that anyone accomplishes, some of the smallest stuff, right? It's embarrassing to watch a football game. A lineman makes a tackle. That's what linemen do. And yet that's become cause for two hands in the air and running around the field, getting 50,000 people to to applaud and to, to think you're really something. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he does not understand himself. Paul does understand who he is, but he is going back to the way he used to think about his life prior to Christ. And so he's laying out his pedigree and all of his accomplishments in Judaism, and all of it is for the sake of argument. And he begins to take inventory of his life. Prior to meeting Christ on the road to Damascus, and Paul really does, I think, what most men are apt to do when they think about salvation. You begin to lay out the good. And you begin to lay it up against the bad. And you begin to make comparisons and consider how does my life measure up and do I really have enough to make it into heaven? And so as we come to verses 7 and 8, Paul uses language that was common in the business world. It was accounting language, the language of profit and loss. Look again at verse 7 with me. Whatever things were gain to me, that is profit. Those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them by rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Paul next week is going to make the strongest denunciation of trying to account for one's life 
by way of personal holiness, by way of goodness, by way of law keeping, he's going to step away from all of that. And he does that even in verse 7, as we'll see. You can think of it this way. If human righteousness were money, if you could bank your righteousness, Paul is saying, I had a vast account. I was rich. I was the Elon Musk of Israel. I had all that a man could want by way of personal recommendation for heaven. And so Paul pulls out his ledger and he begins to write down, he begins to catalog all of the things that would have been in the prophet column, all these personal assets, all the things that would help him in the day of judgment as he stood before the God of his fathers. He, he thought about all the things that were really badges for him of honor. Now we need to remember as we come to this text, as we read this morning, that we're in a flow of thought. And the real question that I've been reminding you week by week is where is your trust? As you think about the day of judgment, as you consider standing before the Lord of glory, and he wants an account of your life, and you realize the, the, the significance of that moment, heaven or hell, what is it that you would cling to? What is your argument? What is your plea? What is your confidence? What would you tell the Lord? What are you relying upon or who are you relying upon for acceptance with God? And there are two groups in our text, aren't there? There are those whom he refers to as the dogs who had their confidence in themselves and they were confident and they boasted in the works of the flesh, namely circumcision, which again was that sort of foremost foundational right of the Jew. And then there are those who are anchored in the grace of God, who are, as Paul says, the true circumcision, who boast in Christ and they place no confidence in the flesh, none at all. Our confidence is in Christ and Christ alone. We are those, Paul says, who boast in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh, but he says, but, this is the, translation, or the transition, but if if I were to boast in the flesh, if we were to try and make that argument that somehow this wasn't about Christ, but this is about being good, well then, he says, I want you to come in this room. This is my trophy room. And I want you to look at these plaques that I have on the wall. They're neatly framed. There are seven of them. I want you to look at these plaques and let's, let's talk for a moment about my righteousness as I used to understand it. The first four he speaks about are these inherited assets. These are assets that Paul came to have simply by being born to the right nation and being born to the right parents. Paul, in other words, is saying, I had the right pedigree. And so he steps over to the first plaque and he looks at it and he and on there it says Saul of Tarsus. And underneath his name is listed his accomplishment. And what is it? Well, you can see it right there in verse 5. 
circumcised the eighth day. Remember, Paul has been talking about circumcision. We saw last week that every Israelite male child had to be circumcised on the eighth day according to the law. And Paul says, my parents took me and they took it seriously and they followed every letter of the law. I was not circumcised on the seventh day or the ninth. I was circumcised on the eighth day. My parents were law keepers. I came from a Christian family. Now, no Jew would affirm that, of course, but that's our vernacular. That is it in our world. Paul says, I grew up in the right home, and I had the right parents, according to the right nation. I was marked out as a covenant child from the very beginning. I was not one of those proselytes who came to Judaism late in life and finally saw the error of my ways, and therefore I came, and as an adult, I was circumcised so that I might become a Jew. No, I was circumcised as a child, as an infant. Beyond that, he's implying that I was not a compromiser from among the Hellenistic Jews. You remember that the Jews had been dispersed and many Jews grew up outside of Israel, many of them in Greek speaking and Greek culture, and they became Hellenized, they became culturized, they became compromised. You know, a Hellenistic Jew might kind of look at that eighth day thing as a little bit narrow, a little bit too rigorous. Maybe we just skip circumcision altogether. After all, all the kids at my school are not circumcised, and therefore, why should I? Paul says, that that wasn't me. My family, we were not indifferent to the law. We were not disobedient to the commandment. I had it right from the very beginning. I was right in line with my fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. My parents kept the rituals. And they kept the rights even before I was old enough to understand it. I was marked out as God's man from day eight. He steps over to the second plaque. Saul of Tarsus of the nation of Israel. What's he saying? I'm a pure blood. I was born of the nation of Israel. I'm a very stock of Israel. And you'll recall that Israel was the covenant name given to Jacob and his sons, and Paul was in line with those people, and he was a pure blood who could trace his ancestry back when he, he got the thing at, at Christmas, and he, he opened it up, and he got the, you know, whatever the deal is where you can, myancestry.com, and he got on there, and he paid the money, and they traced it back. There was one line going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. He was of the nation of Israel. He was of the elect nation. From all the nations of the world, that little nation that God in his electing love ordained to be his own, Paul says, that's me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 22, Paul puts his credentials up against the Judaizers there too who were troubling the church And he poses these questions in kind of a staccato fashion. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, but so am I. I far more. 
They were not servants of Christ. And Paul would put his Jewish lineage up against anybody. And so you see what he's getting at. He says, look, if it comes down to one's religious heritage, I'm your man. (laughs) I'm the guy. My credentials are impeccable. I'm a pure Israelite by birth, and I'm circumcised as required by the law on the eighth day. He steps over to the third plaque. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. It gets better yet. I haven't even gotten started. Benjamin was the last of the 12 sons that were born to Jacob, and you remember that he was born to Jacob's beloved Rachel, his favorite wife. Sounds weird to even say it, doesn't it? She, she died in childbirth, bearing this son, and, and so this child, Benjamin, had a special place in Jacob's heart, and it was a tribe that was renowned for a number of reasons, first among which Jerusalem was located in that land that was assigned to Benjamin, and that's where the temple was, and that's where the sacrifices were offered. When the kingdom was divided after the death of Solomon, the tribe of Benjamin was one of the two faithful tribes who remained loyal to the Davidic line. Benjamin and Judah were the two southern tribes that, that didn't intermarry with foreigners. They were the ones who were, who were pure and, and, and loyal to the Lord. You remember that the first king of Israel was a Benjamite, and what was his name? Saul. He may have been Paul's namesake. This was a very, very distinguished tribe. It gets better yet. He looks over at the fourth plaque on the wall and says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. That is to say, I think that Paul was a Hebrew born of Hebrew parents. He was a Hebrew through and through. And this was important because he grew up, as I said, in a prominent Gentile city known as Tarsus in modern Turkey. It was very, very well known for its Greek culture, its philosophy, its wealth, its literature, its education. According to historians, its learning rivaled and even maybe excelled the learning that was in Athens and Alexandria. But here's the thing, Paul's in the midst of all of that and he had the capacity somehow by God's grace to take in all that was good from from his upbringing in those things, but he never polluted himself. He never fell prey to the compromises of that culture. He never became, as I said, Hellenized. He never adopted Greek practices and values. He and his parents followed all the customs the Hebrew customs rigorously. It's interesting, Paul was set up, wasn't he, early in life, just as God would do it, all the details being furnished. He could speak Greek and he could speak Hebrew and he was gonna go out and be an apostle to those who spoke those languages. And at the same time, he could wheel and deal, couldn't he, in the synagogue week by week. Why? Because he could speak Hebrew. He kept his native tongue. His parents saw to that. And he learned his orthodoxy at an early age. He was steeped in it. In fact, he leaves relatively early in life to go to Jerusalem so that he might be trained under Gamaliel. Paul says, in essence, you know, I was born right. My bloodlines are pure and undiluted. I'm a Jew of Jews. I was raised a Hebrew of Hebrews. And if salvation comes 
by being the ultimate Jew, then I am the most qualified person you have ever seen. And all of that was gained by merely being born into the right family. But that's only the half of it. Paul not only possessed inherited assets, but he also had secondly earned assets. He had earned assets. Paul was not content to rest in his privileges by birth. Like so many who are raised with nobility and wealth in our day, right? I've got money, why work? Paul had a vast bank account of, of righteousness from the perspective that he was owning at the time, and, and yet he, he was one who came at it and say, I'm not just going to rest on those laurels. I'm going to be a hardworking man. I'm going to be an accomplished man. Paul was born right, and he behaved right. He was an A student. and These were accomplishments now that, that he relished in. He earned these. This fifth plaque was something that Paul was particularly proud of. He says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. What's he talking about? He says, well, when I signed up for Judaism, I went the high route. I wanted to dwell in lofty places. My uncle, John, went into the Marines. I remember him telling me when I was in high school, he went into the Marines, and I know there'll be some here this morning who will, who will want to contest this, but he went into the Marines because because it was the toughest branch of the military for the toughest men. I remember him telling me that with, with pride in his heart. That was Paul's mindset. I'm going to be a Pharisee because that's, that's the most righteous branch. Those are the most zealous people. They're the ones who are really, really, really righteous. He describes himself in Acts 23 as a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee, implying that Paul was not the first member of his family to be associated with the sect. So that when it comes to Judaism, you can't get any higher than this. And Paul was standing in a line with even within his own family of this very elite and erudite group, a very wealthy group of people, a very prominent group of people. And on one sense, they were held up by the culture around them because you couldn't deny externally the quality of their lives. On the other hand, they were despised by the culture around them because they were hypocritical. Jesus says, you'll remember in Matthew 23, they used to bind up heavy loads and put them on other men. They wouldn't lift them with so much as a finger. The word Pharisee means separated one, and it was a derogatory term initially that was given to them by the culture. They warmed up to the idea, you're right, we're a separate crowd. But, but they started as these fundamentalists. They were the Torah thumpers. They were legalists and separatists who believed in the binding nature of the law. They, they were committed to living out the Old Testament scriptures. So they read the scriptures. They studied the scriptures. They memorized the first book, books of the Bible. The first five, can you imagine? They interpreted and they taught the scriptures. They like to take the scriptures and even bolster them a bit by making the laws a little more unattainable. 
or attainable, depending on what they're attempting to accomplish. The Pharisees were the most conservative of all the sects of Judaism. Paul describes it in Acts 26.5. He says it is the strictest sect of our religion. They were fastidious in their observation of the most minute details of the law, and they applied the law in the strictest of ways. Paul says, I knew every jot and tittle of the law. I could tell you how it applied. I could tell you how many steps there were in a Sabbath day's journey. I could tell you what it meant to work on the Sabbath. I could tell you what was right, and I could tell you what was wrong. Paul knew all the traditions, and he tried to live earnestly by them. And he had it as his constant pursuit to take the most difficult and the most demanding and the most narrow road he could possibly find to earning favor with God. And as such, he went after Christianity with a vengeance. So he steps over to yet the next plaque and he says, verse 6, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. You want to know how earnest I was in seeking to serve God, I sought to destroy Christians. Paul was not playing around. He did not have a coexist bumper sticker. He understood that Christianity was a direct rival to Judaism, and therefore he sought to stamp it out with all that he could muster. He was a proud defender of the law. He loved his ancestral traditions. He was pro-God, and that in his mind meant he had to be anti-Christ. And as far as he was concerned, this Christ was a blasphemer, and everyone that followed him was worthy of death. Paul, you remember, or Saul at the time, was guarding the coats of all of those standing by very approvingly while, while they were stoning Stephen and putting him to death. Acts 8.1 says he was in hearty agreement. He was all in with putting Stephen to death. Acts 8.3 says that Saul began to ravage the church. This is the same man, the Apostle Paul. He was ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women, and he would put them in prison. He was arresting and binding Christians and tearing them out of their families, out of their homes, away from their cities, marching them straight up to Jerusalem where he would put them on trial for heresy, and hopefully it would end up in prison or maybe even if he was, if he was fortunate, the person's death. Look over with me at Galatians and chapter 1. Galatians 1.13. Here's another one of those mini testimonies Paul gives. He says, for you have heard of my former manner of life. Paul was renowned. He was renowned. You've heard of me, haven't you? You've heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church beyond measure, and I tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries, uh, among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. That was Paul. And the apostles and the disciples and other believers 
after Paul was converted, you remember, they were, they were full of fear as to what this man would do to them. When, when he met them, he, they thought he was maybe going double agent on them, and he was just professing Christ in order to infiltrate the church so that he could persecute the church further. I love this. But when God, not when I, but when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, he says, I didn't immediately consult with flesh and blood. I didn't even go to Jerusalem. He went out, and the Lord ministered to him personally. Beloved, that ought to be an encouragement to you, whether your son or daughter, your, your, your grandparent is, is lost, and they're focused on seeking to either earn their way to God or live in utter denial of him by their life. Understand that God in his grace can act on any individual. You have hope. And Paul, in fact, says that. He says, the reason that God saved me as the foremost of sinners is that I might be the very, the very example to others who would hope in Christ who come going, I've done so much, so much wickedness. There's no room for me with God. I've sinned my way out of heaven. He says, no, 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 no. I was worse. And God saved me. Well, back to Philippians. Paul was a great man of zeal. And I know we go to heaven and like rest, right? That's, that's, <laughs> that's the word in the image. I want to see some of Paul's zeal, though. I, I really do. I, I, I would like to have bounced off of this man particularly after he came to know Christ. You see, he looks back on the kind of zeal that he had as he was outpacing everyone around him in Phariseeism, and that misguided zeal to him was the sin of all sins. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 9, I am the least of the apostles and not even fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. You can hear the anguish in his voice. He says, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. You see, from Paul's perspective, steeped in Judaism, he didn't see it this way until he came to see Christ and to understand his sin. Instead, he thought he was serving with Yahweh with a clear conscience. He was a man of great zeal for his religion, and zeal is good, but his zeal was misdirected. And he thought he was earning righteousness. He thought he was on the treadmill of righteousness and that he was recommending himself to God, that he was defending the faith, and that God ultimately was very pleased with him because of all that he was doing. Well, there's a final notch on Paul's belt of self-righteousness. There's a a final plaque on the wall, and we see it there at the end of verse 6. He says, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. I want you to pause for a minute and think about that statement. Could you have ever written it? Would you have ever written it? 
Paul wrote it. And that tells us something about the Apostle Paul, which we need to take to heart. As I said earlier, if we had been there and we had seen Paul, Saul the Pharisee, we would have been very, very, very impressed with his squeaky clean life. Not only we would have, but everybody would have. This was a moral man. He is ultimately moral. There was nobody in town who lived a more moral and devoted life than the Apostle Paul. Paul says, look, you could have been a fly on the wall and look at my life. I was above reproach. I was ultimately careful. I was zealous. I was diligent. I was sincere. I was good, outwardly speaking. He was voted most likely to succeed, undoubtedly, in his class at Pharisee school. Listen, he is not speaking here of sinless moral perfection. He is not claiming that he was without sin. Romans chapter 7 traces all of that, and it, it helps us see that Paul was wrestling mightily within, wasn't he? Because he saw that the goody two-shoes that he was on the outside did not correspond with the wretched, wicked man that he was at the heart level. He was devoted outwardly, but his heart had no devotion for God and no devotion truly for Christ at all. So he's speaking here about outward conformity to the law. We shouldn't be surprised by that. It's the same way that Scripture speaks of John the Baptist's parents in Luke 1.6. It says, they were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the requirements of the Lord. What are we to take from that? They were sinless? No. What we're to take from that is these were people who were seeking to do it right. They did, in fact, seek to to love the Lord in, in, in John's parents' case, and they were walking a life that honored the Lord. But we also know that John's parents were looking very much forward to a child that was going to be born, don't we? They knew that their Redeemer was coming. Paul is simply saying this, if you were to look at my life, humanly speaking, I lived on another plane from most people. You couldn't accuse me of violating the dictates of Judaism. I had clean hands and I led a strict life in obedience and adherence to the Mosaic law. And Paul, frankly, could boast like no other Jew and like no other man about his religious inheritance and his attainment. I mean, if anybody could be saved by law keeping and by being the right guy at the right time, it was the Apostle Paul. Boyce puts it this way, humanly speaking, he had acquired all the assets that anyone could possibly imagine, end quote. Beloved, can I ask you this morning, what are you relying upon for judgment day? What is the boast of your heart? When you think about the question, 
Why is God going to receive me into heaven? What is your answer? I mean, if we think about Paul, aren't these the very things that people rely upon today? The very things. In sort of an Americanized, Christianized way. People cling to their religious rights. I was sprinkled in baptism. I'm a Lutheran. I went through confirmation. I go to confession three times a week. I memorized Awana verses till I was blue in the face. I know a lot of the Bible. Maybe for you, it's national heritage. We certainly hear this a lot in our country, don't we? Uh, What do you mean, what religion am I? What do you mean, why would I get to heaven? Of course I'm going to heaven. I'm an American. And America's a Christian nation. I was born in the USA. God, flag, family, in God we trust. Perhaps for you it's family heritage. I was raised in a Christian family. Why, honey, we're from the South. My pappy and his pappy before him, we was born in the Bible Belt. We go to church every Sunday. I'm a Baptist. You a Baptist. Maybe it's personal morality. And be careful before you check that one off and say, no, that's not me. How do you think about your relationship with Christ? Is it a place of rest? and hope, and joy, and delight, and confession, and repentance, and obedience. Christ is everything to me, because I have nothing else, nothing. And my relationship with him is one that is born of the grace of God. God was merciful to me, the sinner. God in his kindness extended to me, who was helpless and ungodly and sinful and his enemy. And he sent his son. That is the greatest evidence of the love of God for my sinful soul, is that he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for me. Jesus is everything to me, and my joy is full because his love and his grace and his mercy, they never change. Despite me, they never change. Or is your life weighty and burdened, grinding out the Christian faith because you're just not keeping up? The Apostle Paul is running out in front of you and all you see is his backside. You can't sprint with a legalist like that. You're on the treadmill and you're the kind of person who just keeps pumping it up to go faster because you're sure that's what pleases God. 
I just need to obey harder, and I need to work harder, and I need to keep more law, not less law. I need to narrow things down so that I can give myself full. I might as well just go in a cave because what God really wants from me is to avoid everything in this life and devote myself fully to him. Yo, it's not enough for you even to turn up the speed of the treadmill. Instead, you're going to turn up the speed and you're going to crank up the elevation because you need a 7% hill in order to really be fit for Jesus. Brothers and sisters, we fall into that so often. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves. It has nothing to do with you. You brought no benefit to the equation whatsoever. It is the gift of God so that no man might what? Boast. If I'm going to boast, Paul says, it's not about me. I'm going to boast in Christ. And that is the point, beloved, is that none of us can carry the weight that we need to be able to carry with God, none of these things accomplish what Paul thought they accomplished. His inheritance by birth wouldn't do it. His accomplishments in life wouldn't do it. None of these things had any purchasing power whatsoever. It was all monopoly money. He could not buy salvation with that. The psalmist tells us, that the redemption of your soul is costly so that you should cease trying forever. Do you hear that? You can't buy it. You can't earn it. None of these plaques will del deliver the Apostle Paul. There, there, there is one plaque and one name and one way and one hope and one mediator between God and man, and that is the man Christ Jesus. And so Paul, when he comes to understand the righteous requirement of God, he despaired literally of, of, of the wasted life that he had lived. He looked at it all and he goes, it's all futile. All of this goes in the dumpster. There is nothing here with which I can barter. He had inherited assets. He had earned assets. Paul says, thirdly, it all is toxic assets. What's a toxic asset? You've probably heard the term. Toxic assets, according to one investment website, is this. They're investments that are impossible to sell at any price because the demand for them has, gone, has utterly collapsed. You, you purchased a house in a place that now is worth nothing. Nobody will give you money for it. It's absolutely worthless. And this is the way Paul looks at all of his assets, both inherited and earned. He says, I'm of noble bloodline. I have a Hebrew upbringing. I have all this attainment by religious zeal. I look at all of that and I go, what's it worth? Nothing. It's worth less than nothing. Verse 7, whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever things were gained to me, those things that contributed to my sense of accomplishment and self-righteousness, those things that I thought I could offer God in, in trade for my salvation, those things, he says, I've counted loss for the sake of Christ. And again, this is that accounting language. He looks at everything he'd written down in the profit column and he realizes he just has to take his pen and scratch out the word profit 
and he's got to draw an arrow from over here. That's a loss. That's a loss. All of it is a loss. It's worth the no- worse than nothing in, in, in the eyes of God. Paul thought he was in the black until he came to understand the holiness of God. And you can imagine the shock when he became, came to understand the fact that he was in deep debt. He was in red ink. You remember I showed you a few weeks ago in Galatians chapter 2 that Paul says, if you want to prove yourself a transgressor, if you really want to upset God, you just rebuild that legal thing again. You build that ladder, that stairway to heaven, and you try to climb it. Nothing offends God more than your filthy works of righteousness in exchange for the, the, the cross of Christ. That is to render the cross null and void, Paul says. Do you want to do that to Jesus? Say, I, I don't need you. I've got this. I was born right. I behaved right. Sorry, Jesus, but you died needlessly. You see, Paul goes through this divine audit, and his life came to nothing. Everything he thought were assets, were in fact liabilities. He was not rich in righteousness. He was bankrupt in sin, and he was flat broke, and spiritually speaking, he he was in debt. He was a pauper and not a prince, and that came to him in life. By the grace of God, he was shown his sin. And so Paul goes into that trophy room and he takes all of those plaques and he, he boxes them up and he puts them out on the curb for pickup. They mean nothing. I count them all loss for the sake of Christ. I junk them all. And from that point on, Paul had but one plaque on his wall. And it did not, it was not attributed to Saul of Tarsus. It was attributed to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, to Jesus Christ. Righteousness. My righteousness, Paul says. That plaque touts the righteousness of another, his accomplishments, his impeccable life, his sinlessness, his perfections, his sufficiency. Paul says, yeah, I still bring people down here. I like to bring them down here a lot to go to my trophy room. And you wouldn't believe the look on their face because every time I point to this, it doesn't even have my name on it, but I boast and I boast because his accomplishments are my accomplishments through faith. Glory be to God through Jesus Christ. My sins are forgiven once and for all. I have life. I have heaven. I have fellowship with God. I have fellowship with other believers. Christ has accomplished it all for me. Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. Or as Paul put it in Galatians 6.14, far be it from me, far be it from me that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters, this is exactly where we must be this morning as we come to this table. We have been brought here by the grace of God. And this table is open to any and to all who profess Christ and know him as Lord. Those who've come for cleansing. And we need to remember him 
We need to wipe off the wall of merit in our own lives. Anything else that we think somehow will be a backup plan in case Jesus fails us in the end. No, this table speaks to the sufficiency of Christ, to blood that washes white as snow, to bread that feeds us eternally. These are the things we tend to forget, I think, oftentimes in the church as we come to communion, we think this is mostly about a time of just facing the music of our sins and, and, and being just really grateful that Jesus forgave them. No, this is time to examine yourself, yes, but this is time to remember Christ, to focus on what you have in Christ, to let your heart billow with gratitude for Christ. What he did for you. He invited you to dinner. It wasn't your goodness that brought you here. He opened the door to sinners who would come in repentance and faith and contriteness of heart. That's the one to whom Christ looks. And we just come understanding that we have need. Brothers and sisters, don't forget who we are. We're bankrupt and we're spiritually impoverished. Don't forget that our righteousness is not our own. It's not grounded in anything that we do, but in him alone. And we need to remember as brothers and sisters in Christ that we come to this table for one reason and one reason only. That is to glory in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. We cannot be justified by works. And Paul wants us to understand that. And the Lord wants us to understand that. And we should be refreshed this morning. Beloved, if we're going to be saved, it will be God's doing. And if any of us are going to be righteous, we must receive it as a gift from him. And if any of us are going to make it to heaven, it will be on the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ who lived the righteous life that we could not and paid a debt that we could not pay. And all of that becomes ours, reconciled, in fact, through him and then again with the righteousness of God now credited to our account. We are worthy because of Christ to come to this table. Come and eat. Come and rest. Come and rejoice again at what Christ has accomplished for you. Bring no pride and no self-pity. He knows you through and through. He knows that you are but dust. Come in your helplessness and receive what Jesus has prepared for us. Christ is sufficient, beloved. He has paid it all. Lord Jesus, the life is in the blood. And you have provided your blood, a pure and precious lamb, that we might have life. Lord, we remember your words to Martha that though we die, Yet shall we live because you are the resurrection and the life. And Lord, you are risen and returning. And you have again brought us to a table where you have said, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they shall be white like wool. Though they are crimson white like snow. Lord, we thank you that you will in the end present us before your glorious throne with great joy, blameless, above reproach. Oh, Lord, how we anticipate that day when our feet will no longer need to be washed because we will be clean, sin never to molest again. 
We do pray, Lord, that you would come and come quickly. Thank you for our time this morning to contemplate these things. Thank you for this wonderful reminder that we cannot work for what is only given as a gift. Thank you for your righteousness. Lord, as we sing, help us to sing from our heart. Help us to express our gratitude to you for all that you've done for us. Thank you again for the cross and for life that we have in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.